Welcome to Mosaic of China, a podcast about people who are making their mark in China. I'm your host, Oscar Fuchs. Today is the final of three re-releases from previous seasons. The first was with Björn Dalman, the Swedish clown from season two, which was inspired by our reunion on the streets of Shanghai on his first time back in China for four years. Then last time was the one with sea life conservation specialist Emily Madge, since I wanted to re-release an episode with a Brit to coincide with my first time back in the UK for four years. And today I'm re-releasing the episode with Lysanthia Taylor, the Australian pain management expert from season one, episode 28. The reason I'm releasing Lysanthia's original episode is because of where I've been since my family reunion in London. No, I haven't been in Australia. I've been on holiday in Malta and now Portugal. If you listened to Lysanthia's catch-up episode in season two, at the end of the interview with Seth Harvey, you will know that Lysanthia found herself in Portugal for a year during COVID, when she was locked out of returning to China. Lysanthia has since returned to China and then moved with her Portuguese husband to Australia. So just like with Emily from last week's re-release episode, who moved from Shanghai to Thailand to Denmark, Lysanthia has also made two big international moves since this original recording first aired in 2020. And I mentioned that I'd been on holiday to Portugal and Malta. And coincidentally, there's also a connection to Malta. I first met Lysanthia when she was working at Parkway Health in Shanghai, and I needed her help in my rehabilitation from surgery on my ACL. Well, the person who did that surgery was Dr. Dirk Rietveld, who has since moved from Shanghai to Malta. So for all these reasons, it just feels right to be listening to Lysanthia's voice again today. I'm here today with Lysanthia Taylor, and you are currently a physiotherapist at Parkway Health. I am indeed, Oscar. Thank you for having me. I first got to know you when I was one of your patients. It's a common story. It, it, it means I don't really have to have a social life. Oscar, I mean, I can just have, you know, a, a, a constant stream of fabulous people <laughs> that come to meet me every day. And, of course, our conversations start with a certain context. You know, right. often you're meeting people on not their best days. Uh, but, yes, that is how you and I came to be friends. You had such a, an easy way of making me feel comfortable, even when I physically wasn't. You just brought it down to a level which was so much more human, and I really appreciated that. So I'm not surprised that you make a lot of friends on that table. I don't know that I could do... I don't, I don't think anyone can do the, a job well, especially when you do meet people on their... Often, their, some days, their worst days. Uh, if you can't get to the human underneath that, and you know, science is important, but the human story... And, you know, what does this injury mean to someone? What does this pain mean? What's this pain stopping you doing? How are you not yourself because of this pain? Because they do sometimes look at you like you have two heads because no one else has asked them. Right. It's so fundamental. But there you go. Okay, well, we'll get onto that in a second. What I want to first of all ask you, which is what I ask every guest on Mosaic of China, is what is the object that you've brought in that in some way typifies your life here in China? Well, if you have a look at my socks, which I'm kicking out from underneath the table. Okay. I have some fabulous 
pink socks that I'm wearing with uh, with with moustaches on them. Oh, that's what they are. I thought they yeah. were slugs. No, they're moustaches. They were given to me by a friend, and so they are a, a gift that's given out by an organisation called uh, Pink Socks. And if you go to pinksocks.life, you can find out about them. And it was a, a little movement started within healthcare um, that talks about compassion and human-centeredness within the practice of either clinical care in healthcare administration, in healthcare innovation. So I, I, I think that does typify what I try to bring to my patients and bring to the experience of healthcare in a city like Shanghai. You know, that leads us straight into the conversation, of course, because you've been someone who has made pain your your mission. Yeah, it, it's an interesting way to approach building relationships when you come from it from the point of, tell me about your pain. Um, you know, pain is a very difficult area of healthcare. One in five people globally are affected by persisting pain. That's 20% of people. And what do you know, maybe even just anecdotally, about, about how that's dealt with in China? China is very, very interesting. You know, we, we, you and I, would, if we go out in the evening, we'll see the you know, old ladies dancing in the street that are you know, actively moving their bodies and various uh, people doing Tai Chi. And there's a very active idea around maintaining health. But when people get sick... There's a very passive idea around pain. It's a hundred day rule. So if you get if you if you have an injury, the traditional ideas are you must stop, you must rest, you must go to bed mm. for a hundred days, even after childbirth. And we know in the West we do lots of rehab and we get people back to doing normal life and moving around. And in China you're not even allowed to wash your hair. Wow. So what we find from a, a rehab perspective is that China's emerging as a place where there's a lot more elective surgery or joint replacements. Unfortunately, big markets like China end up uh, emerging as a new profit center. Mm. Now, the problem from a rehab perspective is that, you know, say someone has a hip replacement in the West, we get them up day one post-operatively. Mm. Like, let's get moving because we don't want that nervous system to become sensitive. And that's a big part of pain. If you do that, try and do that in China, you will fight someone's entire family because the idea is you need to rest. You need to not move. You need to wait that time for healing. And that means that people end up severely disabled. It's a conversation that we have with some of my colleagues that speak Chinese, mm. that do have the ability to interface into the local healthcare system, which I don't have. Right. Can you learn from the Chinese way or is it really only a one-way street right now? Um, a lot of the problems that we have developed, I think, in the West has come from you know, the way that we use scans and x-rays to tell people they're very damaged, which is really more about normal age-related changes that will show up on an x-ray once you're past a certain age. But if you tell someone that's there and you, they believe that their back is damaged, it actually sets up a whole kind of cascade of different outputs of the brain, protective behaviours, fear, worry, changes to normal activities. That actually becomes a really interesting and potent breeding ground for persisting pain. Mm -hmm. what, what we're working on in the West now then is how do we kind of you know, educate people around 
their back is strong. How do we educate people around these are normal changes? These are wrinkles on the inside. Now, it's great we have scans and x-rays because they do stop people dying if there's pathology going on. But what we do is we pathologize things that are not things that are wrong or need to be fixed. It's just the natural wear and tear of an aging body. Of living a life, Mm. of engaging with the world, of doing things that are meaningful to you. Not that you know, you're, you're broken in 10 different vertebrae and you've got all these problems. The classic line is, it's just in your mind, right? When it comes to pain, when it comes to pain management. Yeah. When we get to talk about the science, the worst thing that we should never say is, well, don't you know pain is a, an, an output of your brain? Pain is 100% mediated and related to your brain. And what that does is it shuts down that person's ability to, to hear anything else because what you've said to them is, what you're feeling is wrong. Mm. We make what I call sensory stories. So if my back hurts, I have to have some way of explaining that to myself and to others. The easiest way is usually what my doctor has told me, that I have three bulging discs. But what is someone's lived experience? And also what is another, a new story that's actually going to enable them to do something different? You have to be so careful about helping them to find themselves in a new story. You know, pain is a little bit like depression and even obesity. They all have distributed areas of the brain that cause that output. Yeah, so it's never just one thing. Social connections um, have a big impact on the way that your brain might go into that protective state. Mm. What you think and believe, the people you hang around with, the social messages you get about pain, where the interest rates have gone up. All of these things that are a threat to an individual can wind up your nervous system to produce continuing pain. Yeah, that's fascinating. And so what is the new science then? So what they're looking at is, is pushing back against you know, uh, Rene Descartes' very early model around stimulus and response. So if I stick my finger in a fire or you know, something, something that, that I would expect to hurt, that I get a signal from my finger that goes up to my brain that alerts my brain to say your tissue is damaged. Yeah? Pain means that you're damaged, yeah? and that's not true. We have danger detectors. We don't have pain detectors. Mm. We don't have pain pathways. We have danger pathways. So at the, the basis of this science is recognising that pain is an alarm system, more so than pain is telling you what's going on in the tissue. You can be actually really healthy while you hurt. It's not uncommon for, say, people that have um, you know, accidents and injuries to be absolutely 100% perfectly fine and they might go to the site of their injury and their pain comes back. Yeah. yeah? I had an episode of sciatica myself, which was pretty nasty. And, and I, I feel like it started you know, when I was going to yoga. I finally went back to yoga after a couple of years and I developed this pain and I would be absolutely fine during the day until I was walking to the yoga studio. No, and I'd been treating patients all day, I'd been doing perfectly stressful things on my body and that's when it started. Mm. And so you can't talk yourself out of pain, Mm. absolutely not. And again, if we're coming back to what we need to be careful about with people in the clinic of sort of giving, giving them an idea that 
well, once you you know, you know about pain, you can kind of you know overcome it, talk mm. your way out of it, mm. or think your way out of it. You have to experience your way out of it. Often, I would say to someone, you know, what what's something that you love doing that you're not doing, mm. and they want to go back to playing football. And what we, we they might not be ready physically to play football, mm. but what you'd start to look at is well, what what's the context around football? Is it social? Is it feeling included? And so we would say to them, right, let's go to football training. You might just be running water. You might be doing something. But putting them into something where they start to feel more like themselves. Mm. You get a bit distracted. Distraction's fabulous. <laughs> Once you know that pain is not a damage signal, you can give people the permission to distract themselves a little bit. And then it's quite amazing if you then give them something meaningful to do, if you can find something that's meaningful that matters and you and I both know most physio exercises are not things that feel like they matter. Mm. And that needs to be an important transition. So if you think about the general way that it's, it's dealt with here in China, which is rest and, and isolation, really, that's the opposite of what you're talking about. Yeah. That's the big challenge. You're, you're kind of lifting the lid on how you treated me now. It all makes sense. And, and I think this is what you and I have talked about before. You think in the past you've called this narrative medicine? So what narrative medicine talks about is the importance of learning to be a good reader, a good listener. And we learn that by engaging with difficult literary texts, with poems. Oh, I see. So it's literally narrative. So we narrative. literally oh, study this. And what that does is that builds my ability to understand a difficult story. If I read Jane Eyre... I go into someone else's life, someone else's perspective. Because if you sit across from me in the clinic, you might as well be telling me a science fiction story because I don't live in your life. And unless I've built the skill, and it's a learned skill. I mean, some of us have a proclivity to be able to do it, but, 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 but anyone can learn mm. to be able to sit with, you know, healthcare stories are hard. I mean, I only deal with pain. I don't deal with cancer diagnosis. I don't deal with palliative end-of-life stuff. I, I never wanted to be a doctor because I didn't want to deal with death. Um, but what I find I deal with a lot of the time in dealing with persisting pain is you know, a small death of identity. Mm. So narrative medicine has been a wonderful practice that now I, I teach a bit online, um, I use within my own practice, and, and also sits behind some of my other online projects. And is this an expansion of what otherwise you'd, you'd call bedside care or you'd call empathy? Yeah. yeah. You, so empathy is a really interesting word to use. I prefer to use the word receptivity. Mm. So empathy says, I feel what you feel. What receptivity says is, I can handle your story. I'm, I'm someone that's safe to tell. Mm. You know, I, I'm, I'm not going to feel what you feel because then if I'm going to feel everything that every patient's going to feel when they come into the room. You'll be exhausted, yeah. And it is exhausting work. Mm, that's but interesting. You've got to be able you've got to be able to, to not distance yourself. Yes, my job is to prescribe some exercises and be a physio. I do some poking around at people's bodies. But really my job is to give a mm. shit. I can read a book and it moves me. Maybe I see myself in that book. Maybe... I, I, you know, I, I learn new things. I go to different worlds, but I don't have to live there. Mm. And that would be the difference between empathy and receptivity. Mm. It actually makes me think about uh, when I was a headhunter and having to listen to people 
um, you know, who were sometimes in between jobs, which was also a very stressful part of their lives. But how did you get here then? Well, I, I, ne- I never meant to be a physio, to be honest. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in Australia. I grew up on a, a farm. Uh, I was going to be a veterinary surgeon, missed out by 0.2 of a mark. Is that right? Yeah. But you could have reset that test. I quite could have. And yeah. I, I've, I, I even, it was only five or six years ago, I still, for the last time, I went and looked at it and went, oh, it wasn't me. And it, maybe it wasn't me at the time and I wouldn't have done the life I've done. Mm. So my, my, my second choice was, was physical therapy. I didn't really know what physios did, but I kind of liked the idea. My third choice, which is quite interesting, was media and communications. Oh, here you go. And so I mean, I'd always been you know, a writer, a reader, a words nerd, but I ended up being a physio and I never loved it. Mm. And it pays the bills, but what is this? Is this really fulfilling me? So it made me do other things. Mm. Uh, and then I finally threw my hands in the air and said, I'm not doing this anymore. Um, and I had my own practice at the time and I closed everything up and I went and I moved to Silicon Valley. Uh, I was lucky I had a friend there that was the CEO of a tech company. And so I went and did a tech startup for a while. And then I thought, all right, time to go back to Australia. And uh, I, I lasted two weeks. <laughs> and I just went, no, it's, it's not time. And about the same time, I had a friend here who had just you know, started a, a venture capital fund here and needed someone to keep him company more than anything, and that's how I got to be here. And we have to remember we're, we're really lucky mm. to be here. And I think it is easy to forget how spoiled we really are. We get to have the best of everything. Thank you, Lysanthia. Let's move on to part two. Shall we? So part two is where I ask the same questions to all of my interviewees. Um, so why don't we start? Go on. Okay, what's your favorite China-related fact? I love the fact that China has one time zone. The sun doesn't rise till 10 a.m. in Xinjiang. But I, I just love the ability. You're just like, we're just going to do just one time. Do you have a favorite word or phrase in Chinese? Oh, I do. I do. Chabuduo. I'll tell you why it's my favorite phrase. Yes. So I'm Australian. So we have this great saying in Australia that like, she'll be right, mate. Right. Which basically means I don't, I don't really care. But right. it's someone else's problem. I've done enough. Right. Right. And to me, that's Chabodor. Yeah. Just just doing enough. Yeah. Okay, next. What's your favourite destination within China? I haven't travelled much in China. Mm. So I have this unfortunate thing. I work on Sundays. So I don't get to go away for weekends. Mm. So I haven't seen as much of this amazing country as I'd like to. Right. If you did leave China, what would you miss the most and what would you miss the least? Right. Well, I would miss many things. I would miss the 10 p.m. Uh, manicure any day of the week. Oh, right. No, and, and no appointments. And right. you just you know, you go in and you get that. I'd, I'd miss having everything delivered. I wouldn't miss the complex algorithm of should you leave the house today, which relies on the temperature, the air pollution, is it torrentially raining, and how's the pollen? So this is specific to you and I in the French concession here mm. in Shanghai, Oscar, mm. but we have these beautiful London plane trees and... This pollen that just get it's, it's it's like rain, and you've got to live here to realize the the best alternative probably in that algorithm is torrential rain mm. because it gets rid of pollution, gets rid of pollen. And luckily for us in Shanghai, it's wet most of the year round. Yay! <laughs> 
Well, thank you for leaving the house and, and coming to me today. <laughs> Is there anything that still mystifies you about life in China? I think now I have to be mystified at my own responses to things. So I'm still mystified why I can't remember that green toothpaste tastes like tea. <laughs> you know, in, in the West, you know, blue or green are going to be mint. Mm. And I still get it wrong and I go home with jasmine tea flavoured toothpaste. Very good. What's your favourite place to, to go out to eat, to drink or just generally hang out? So my favourite place is a cafe. It's on Hua Hailu. It's called mm. On Air. And it's sort of in the, tucked away in the back of a, um, a, a little lane. But you won't know it's there. Nice. You have to, you know, someone, someone has to take you. There are quite a few of those cafes that would fit that same description. So I'm glad you found your own. Please take me there next time. What is the best or worst purchase you have made in China? The luxury of the fabric markets means I get to go and uh, have awful things made on impulse. I mean, the, when, when you go, I mean, you just, when you, you, know, you look at something on a model or you look at a picture and you think, wow, I could have that made in my size, you really appreciate why fashion and fashion models are certain size and shapes. Because, wow, when you get the proportions different, like, goodness, that wasn't good. Oh, it's so funny. I went through a phrase where I used to get a lot of things tailored and a lot of mistakes happened. And now I've gone back to buying it off the rack a lot more because it, you, you know what you're getting and you know what the patterns will look like on your body, et cetera, et cetera. I find if I find one thing that fits somewhere else, I bring it back and then I, then I get it made exactly the same ah, right. in 10 different colors. Right, right. Um, so that's, that's my hack that's around it. that. What is your favorite WeChat sticker? My favourite WeChat sticker is Tina Fey, Liz Lemon, high-fiving herself. Excellent. I know the one. <laughs> I must use that one quite a lot as well. It, it, I think it fits our, our similarly, slightly snarky and sarcastic personalities. Also. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Because we think we're always right and there's no one else who actually believes us, so we might as well just high-five ourselves. What do you mean we're not right? I mean, yeah, sorry. Of course sorry. we are. <laughs> when you go to KTV, what is your go-to song? November rain. No. Yeah. The whole nine minutes? Yeah, and don't touch that button or we have to start at the start. <laughs> oh, man. There's a reason why we haven't done that together, isn't there? Okay. And finally, what other China-related media or sources of information do you rely on? Um, I look at Smart Shanghai hmm. because then I know where not to go with all the other foreigners. Great. Thank you so much, Lizanthia. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. 